period in my career where I tried to get as skinny, you know, and lean as possible. And we experimented a lot with like not eating too much carbohydrate, really. And um, yeah, I learned a lot from uh, and definitely got pretty efficient. Um, and we just you just have to tweak that to tweak that system to fit myself because a bike rider the idea basically the you know like the caveman and all that he, what he used to sort of run on was just meat and berries but obviously the caveman didn't ride a bike so we just had to put a few carbs in there to tweak that system and i don't know it, it worked very well for me the big question is this how do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health our happiness and our longevity that is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Welcome back, Roadman, to another Roadman Podcast. Yeah, glad we got a formal intro done, and you don't have to listen to me improving those anymore. I'm a giddy fangirl again today, one of my favourite riders over the last decade in the peloton. I couldn't believe it when he agreed to come on the podcast. It's Steve Cummings. It'd probably be easier to tell you what Steve Cummings hasn't won than what he has won, but that might make for a very boring next five or six minutes. So instead, I'm going to give you some career highlights. Olympic medal, two-time Tour de France stage winner, Tour of Britain winner, national champion, Vuelta stage winner, Maverick at a peloton, and all-around good guy. Steve Cummins is a lad who I would say has never conformed to the mould. He had a time at Team Sky which was maybe characterised by a clash of cultures. Cummings, the maverick outlaw on the one hand against the formal rigidity of the Team Sky structure and factory. And that clash was never going to end, you know, brilliantly. And Steve talks to us about that. Steve talks to us about diet. He talks to us about mindset, he gives us training tips, tells us the best place in the world in his view to ride your bike. It's a really fascinating podcast and I'm proud and delighted to bring it to you. The main reason I'm able to bring you this podcast, it's because of everyone that has bought me a coffee over on Patreon so far. What I've done is set up a Patreon account and it's your way if we were in the pub together and we were sitting down and you said, you know what, you facilitated this chat with Steve Cummins. That's pretty cool. How did you get Steve Cummins to come to the pub to have a point with us? I listened to his stories there for an hour. Uh, Can I get you a drink, lads? Patreon is your chance to get me that drink. And you know what, you can get Steve to drink as well and I'll pass it on to him. Uh, It's just a nice little way to tip your hat and say, thanks for the content and on your end it might feel like a small gesture just buying someone a point i'm sure you do it all the time i'm sure you even intoxicate a boy random strangers points every now and then but on my end all those little gestures start adding up and the hope is to get this podcast to a level of sustainability very very soon so i do appreciate your kind gestures so it's patreon.com forward slash anthony underscore Walsh. Sorry, I had to double check that one there for a second. It's patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. To avoid that confusion, I'm just going to put the link uh, in the description. I'm going to jump in now and let's listen to the wise, wisdom-filled words of double Tour de France stage winner, Steve Cummins. Take it away. 
So welcome to the Roadman podcast, Steve Cummings. Hello, thank you. <laughs> Good to have you, Steve. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a nice to uh, nice to have a chat. Uh, how, where, where are you at the moment? Uh, I'm just in the UK, so I came back. I was in Andorra. I had to stay in Andorra till um, the 6th of April. It coincides with the tax year. And I'd used up my UK days when I broke my back. So, uh, um, yeah, I had to stay there. And then I came back to the UK. And I'd been away 40 days. So now I'm back in the UK with my family. And we'd moved out. It all went a bit crazy. So I've been at home just doing DIY and stuff like that. So you're nice, you back, you back home in the UK full time? Full time, yeah. We got, we still got a house in Italy, and uh, we go. We were supposed to go at Easter, but obviously the situation, we can't travel. So we just, just doing the house in the UK, really. And I, I hadn't been on my bike for like ten days, just because I've been busy, and just nice to be with the family. And then I uh, went out today. I just made time and went out this morning. It's quite nice. I, I seen an interview with you at, I can't remember which interview it was it might have been the one with Michael Hutchinson and you dropped the quote in and you said you always ride in anger has that changed now since you're retired? Oh yeah it's completely different like um, my motivation's completely changed like my motivation now is just to be fit and healthy and to enjoy it and that's how I kind of started cycling just like banter but you know when it's, when it's your job I was, I don't know, I was so driven, I was in the in a bubble, like, really, I was just, I always wanted to just maximise myself, and motivation to me was never an issue, I just, I don't know, I, I wouldn't even think about it, I'd be down the road before, you know what I mean, it's just like, gone, but now, like I say, it's different, I, I kind of, if I'm not riding with someone, it's, I haven't got that motivation, and I, I kind of feel a little bit guilty as well sometimes, if I'm leaving the house, especially I feel like I should be with a family, because I'm not, I don't know, I guess it's just, I obviously understand the fitness benefit and the health benefit and all that, but um, I just, yeah, there's a fine line between what's fit and healthy and then what's a bit too much, so I'm trying to make that transition because it still feels like nothing to do four or five hours, and that's probably a bit on the excessive side to be away from the family for just for fun, you know. But it's just that change in relationship with the bike. I know for me, like I started out and the bike was like a commuting tool to get me off the bus and into college. And then it turned into, you know, a tool that I tried to make my living with. And now it's turned into, you know, an instrument of fun and joy and happiness. And I guess you're kind of going through that same journey now. Yeah, exactly. Just going back to how I started, really, without, you know, without power, without power meter, without any... I'm lying a bit here because I've still got power meter. But uh, <laughs> are you still downloading yeah. your data? Nah, it does it kind of does it? It's all set up from being a pro. Like it all does. <laughs> as soon as you walk in the door, you know it's like Garmin connects with so downloads automatically. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't look. But um, it's not like I, I don't really care. I just go out and enjoy the bike. And I think as I get fitter and like get more time like my priorities have changed so my priorities now like I say I've been doing a lot of stuff on the house and other things like studying and stuff like that and um, then it's just fitting the biking around those things whereas it used to be the opposite it used to do me training and fit the other things in so um, yeah it's like it's like a mental release as well just to go out and chat with your mates and 
Yeah, ride along without any specific work or any stressing about anything, just enjoying being outside, really. Could you see yourself coming back? You'd never see any World Tour riders going back and riding like the local 10s. I know, I think Wigan's done it for a little bit after you retired, but could you see yourself going back? Um, yeah, because I, I, yeah, I, I don't know, I did, it was funny, last, when I broke my back last, oh no, I broke my collarbone, I was coming back and uh, there was just a few local time trials that I did, like entered a few 25s and stuff like that, and uh, I actually really enjoyed it, it's like, in, enjoyed going to those places, those village halls and all that, and um I'm kind of just like back to back to your roots, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. Never say never, but I, I entered a load of stuff like gravel kind of stuff. Like I was going to do that battle on the beach, and um, there, were, there was other stuff. But like I say, um, it's just costs time, and um, my time. I'm putting my time into other things. I, I just feel a bit selfish putting too much time on the bike. All got to stop and get. Family. But it's it's also one of those things I know for me that what the period I had off the bike I figured out like you know what the bike makes me happy and it's like that saying like if when the airplane's crashing you need to put on your own oxygen mask first do you feel like if you weren't riding you wouldn't be as good a father or wouldn't be as nice a person to be around? Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's just finding the balance, and I'm I'm probably not. I haven't quite found it yet. Um, I I try to run a bit, but my my body's just it just keeps breaking down when I run. Um, hopefully that will get better. But um, I think I think because my daughter's off school, I think when she's back to school, I'll probably find a bit bit of a better routine where I sort of do half of the riding I used to do. But um. What's uh, yeah, it's just, I think you can knock a lot of damage out of 10 hours a week, eight hours a week, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I did it um in October, no, no sorry, November because I was still hoping I'd, I'd race again. And I was, I was doing around half the work, and um, I was really going really well. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think uh, once it, it's just that consistency, like I say, um. Probably half the work I used to do, I'd still go pretty good. It'd just be those repeated efforts. I'd, I'd lack a bit, so like the five, six hours, you'd, you wouldn't be able to continue to do those efforts. I was chatting to Ian Boswell on the podcast last week, and Ian Boswell has obviously trained as World Tour for Gravel now. And I was just saying to him, like, Gravel seems like the clients I'm working with, most of the guys... They're never going to go and ride the Tour de France. It's not their aspiration. It's like watching Avengers or X-Men on the TV. You're like, it's a different world. But there's something accessible about gravel. There's something like, you know what, maybe I could go and ride a gravel race with Steve Cummings. Maybe I could sit on his way for a while. Yeah, no, I think I think it's, it gets you to those places as well. Like for an, like an ex-pro and stuff, you, you go to those places that you never go to. Like there's one across Finland and, and, and just different stuff and gets you really uh, off the beaten track and I think that's appealing for everyone just to go out and enjoy cycling and, and yeah not be super competitive if you don't want to because there's probably all, all kinds of levels and people are just doing it because for you know to enjoy it and, and a bit of camaraderie I, I guess rather than being so super serious where if you like the tour you know if you're not fit you're just out the back door and it's no fun it almost seems like the public appetite is 
you know, we've gone from being intrigued by Sky, and I know you had a period at Sky, and it's just so rigid, it's so formulaic. And I don't know, are people just getting a little bit bored of that? We've seen the last couple of years, the likes of Nibley and stuff calling for power meters to be banned on climbs. It's, gravel nearly seems a protest from the public on, you know what, we're a little bit sick of this just structured formulaic nature. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I guess it, it is quite regimented, quite stacked. Sometimes it's, the pattern is so... It's quite difficult to break that pattern. Um, you know, it's it's so structured, really, so organised world tour racing that it's, it's really difficult to break the mould and do something different, so everyone kind of just does the same thing. And, it, yeah, I guess it's exciting, but it's, it's yeah, it's the same, isn't it? Was it a problem for you? Because I suppose, you know, as a cycling fan, first and foremost, I would have seen you as... You know, you and there's not many left. The Mavericks, I'd call them, like Thomas de Gent is still there, but someone who is just going to knock a bit of crack out of breakaway and throw up a surprise. Yeah, I just well for me, I just tried to identify a niche, and I, I was really motivated, empowered to get the best out of myself, and um, to do that, it was always I, I was motivated by winning. Um, I tried to be like this kind of super domestique, and it wasn't it. I don't know, I wasn't, it was like in conflict with myself. It wasn't uh, a, the best role for me. Um, so I, I chased my dreams, which, and in order to fulfill those dreams, it meant doing something different because I couldn't win a sprint or I couldn't win in the, the hilltop finish with the hardest guy. So I had to do something different, and that's what uh, I loved about cycling. Um, Getting contracts yeah, for yourself or clashing with DSs, did, was it a problem? They're sort of Maverick style. Uh, yeah, well, it is, isn't it? Because you're not. Um, yeah, I've had. Yeah, you sort of. You, I don't know. I guess you do. It's emotional, isn't it? It's emotional sport, and people are passionate about what they do. So there's no. It's not that you're always going to agree with everyone. Um, but at the same time once you've had a disagreement um you often you know you just move on and, and and that's it you just get on with it and um yeah i've had disagreements but it's like a marriage in it i guess and so i'm always good at the end at the end you know you shake hands and it, you just get on with it it's nearly one of the paradoxes when i look at your career where i'm thinking you strike me as like a cycling romantic almost that you're it's the, living in italy it's the passion but then you come through the British track system and you're with Team Sky. And when I think about the opposite of passion, they just both seem such sterile, you know, clinical environments. Obviously, brilliant at churning out results, but nearly like a factory. Yeah, no, I was definitely, I was very, very passionate and I, I wanted to do it in a certain way. And I was, uh, Italy, I, I don't know, that's, I don't know, for me, it was just, I just had these pictures of like all these, Italian riders in the 90s and they just were, were flying you know and good and and that, I don't know I guess I wanted to be a bit like that really go on, fall on Cipollini on it well I don't know there's, it wasn't really like obviously Cipollini he's just a great character but so many of them like Michele Bartoli and Pantani there's, there's so many characters and um, 
Yeah, it wasn't like one particular rider. If I could pick one particular rider, it'd be Michele Bartoli, but it was just a whole group of them, you know, that that era. And the Bartoli, have you read the Bartoli book? Yeah. Oh, it's fucking brilliant. Like, it must be one of the no, best cycling books. Uh, it's like a yeah. road to valor, and it's just talking about, you know, he used his celebrity status during the war. To He was allowed training freely during the war when other, everyone else was locked down, much like, like we are now. But in uh, on the top tube of his bike, he had like a little compartment for smuggling documents, uh, forged documents for the Jews. And like, they don't know how many lives he saved smuggling these documents across enemy lines. It's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, no, I should read that one. This is her little collective exhalation in the middle of the podcast that we're getting so used to. It's the time we can just oh, stretch, have a little bit of a groan, have a little bit of a grunt, stick the kettle on, jump on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh and buy me an L coffee. Buy me a pint of beer because that coffee or that pint of beer, although it's a small gesture and it might feel like a small gesture on your behalf, what it does is it enables us to keep bringing this content week after week. It enables me to keep reaching out to the stars of world cycling and get them on this podcast so you can benefit from their pearls and decades of wisdom. You know, it's a tough time for everyone. And if you can't afford to buy me a pint at the moment, you know what? No hard feelings. As they say in Ireland, you can get me again down the road. Okay, now that we've had our little stretch, now that we've had our cup of tea, let's get back and listen to a little bit more of Steve. Um, yeah, um, yeah. When, when you're, you've lived and raced and trained all over the world, uh, a question we always get all the time as soon as i said you're coming on the podcast today everyone's like where's the best place to go that he's ridden his bike um yeah i, I don't know I'm, I'm biased i like italy a lot i think it's great um i mean there's, there's a bit of traffic there and stuff but um when you know where you're going it's just so many roads and I, you're never really that far away from like a good town or a good bar so for me that that was always something I, I really liked as well you based out in italy with bmc i lived in italy from i lived in italy from i think 2006 onwards i think 2007 i think we actually have a, a mutual friend that uh, helps out and does some of the nutrition stuff for a1 coach and uh, barry murray i think he was over with you at bmc yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he, so he he came. He stayed at my house for a bit, um, and yeah, he was a nutrition. Yeah, we were nutrition. Um, yeah, good guy, good guy. Do He's you ultra. do you still do uh, any of the sort of car backloading stuff that Barry'd be an advocate of? Uh, I did a lot of that. Yeah, as just a period in my career where I tried to get as skinny, you know, and lean as possible, and we experimented a lot with like. Not eating too much carbohydrate, really, and um, yeah, I learned a lot from, uh, and definitely got pretty efficient. Um, and we just, you just have to tweak that to tweak that system to fit myself because a bike rider, the idea basically, the you know, like the caveman and all that, what he used to sort of run on was just meat and berries. But obviously, the caveman didn't ride a bike, so we just had to put a few carbs in there to tweak. 
that system and I don't know, it, it worked very well for me. As a, do you ever do fasted rides now or, or is there too much of an association with being a pro on fasted rides? Um, not right at the moment, but I, I, I'm sure once I get back into a routine, I will. I will do that. Yeah, because it, it's just about being like feeling good and, and being healthy. And you know, I've put a few kilos on, but I think that's healthy. And just trying to maintain health and happiness. And I don't know, fasting is pretty good evidence that it's it's um, benefit for health as well as performance. So um, I just feel better when I'm fasting. I've been. You know, during the lockdown, especially doing the sort of sixteen eight protocol fasting for sixteen hours, and it sounds extreme, but it's actually just getting up and having your breakfast later. Like it's nothing too crazy. Yeah, no, I think that's it. I think I like it as well because some some days it's it's just different. It gives you appreciation for your breakfast as well. Some days, and then it also you can just throw your kit on and have a coffee and go out the door, which is nice because you get out early. So. And you almost yeah, need to be know. less disciplined with it because no matter how much you fuck up your diet during those eight hours, you only have eight hours to do the damage in. It's hard to eat a shit ton of calories in the eight hours. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, nah, definitely. When I was when I was racing and training and stuff like that, I would uh, fast. I don't know. I tried to limit it actually because at one point I was doing it a lot. I basically wouldn't eat breakfast ever. But we limited it because ultimately when you get to a race and you do have to have breakfast, I was starting to like sort of, it was too much of a, a shock to the body, so we had to change it around a bit. On a, on a tour stage or a stage race, would you ever go with the no-carb yeah. breakfast or were you always plowing the carbs in at breakfast? Um, uh, I'd probably have carbs all the time, really. At work, during a tour maybe like a rest day I wouldn't have carbs maybe uh, it just depends depends on depends on like depends on so many things like the, the, the stages before and how you are as I got older I, I could recognise the signs of when I needed more and when I needed less and what I were, think that's probably why I got better on as older as well what were those signs you look talking power figures or just feelings um, I think it was feelings, and then the power was more like com- confirmation. I did most things on feeling, and then used the numbers as sort of confirmation. Really, isn't it amazing how little you talk about how we feel now? And I chatted to Tyler Hamilton yesterday, and he was talking back about the best advice he got through his career. And he said it was when he was a skier, and it was just a coach saying, "Listen to how you feel." And he said, like, yeah. he obviously went through the crazy dope and stuff, the power meter and all coming in. And he said, we're all that pharmaceutical and technical stuff that came in. He said it was that simple advice that was the most powerful for him. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I found I work best when um, I had sort of, like, specific work. So that was, like, your bread and butter almost. That was what you had to do. And then there was always, like, a window at the end of every session where you just do what you felt sort of, like, I don't know, maybe 30% of the session was on sensation, which is quite a big percentage because, you know, if you feel good, you can do a bit more. And if you don't, if you feel tired, you can do a bit less. And, and it gives you that, I don't know, it gives you a chance to be human, I guess. It's a great idea, actually. Just a machine. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's especially a great idea now because, you know, what I'm saying is everybody's trying indoors and everyone's using Zwift. Have you tried Zwift yet? Yeah, I've rode a... Uh, 
over the, over quite a few years, I've rode Swift a lot, like mostly coming back from injuries. But um, I was riding it when I was up in Andorra the other week. I was riding it a lot because you couldn't ride on the road. But yeah, like, I like Swift. It's a good uh, good tool. So like many it. of the amateurs are just hammering themselves yeah. on Swift now because they're fo- flat out during the Swift workouts, Swift races, and you know. And if you've put yeah. your weight in honestly in Swift, <laughs> you're going to struggle. Yeah, I know, I know. I couldn't finish a race. I don't know what was happening, but I couldn't finish a race. <laughs> ah, they're unreal. They're yeah. unreal. Um, tell me this, when you were on those real good years, when you were on it and you were heading into the big races, did you have like a test climb? I know the lads out in Girona, they have Rocacoba down south of France, they've called the Madone. Did you have a test climb or anything like that? I used to use uh, Monticero, which is um, around Luca area. You can kind of see it when you fly into Pisa. Um, it's got like pretty iconic. It's got like aerials on the top, and I used to use that. And it, um, yeah. a lot of riders tested on there. So I test against myself, but also you had reference of other riders, older riders like Ulrich would test there. And like you know, it's kind of everyone knows everyone's time, and all like Casa Grande and. Michele Bartoli and Shiandri and Sorensen and Pataki and you, yeah I guess in the end it's just about me and my time not about the other one but if you got within a percentage of them then you knew that you know you you had a chance so what I'd sort of length test. climb was it sorry what sort of length of climb was it the climb was I think it's a 6k um, and it used to take if i was really good 16 minutes um i think it was about seven percent uh, can you remember um, what sort of power uh you're doing for that type of climb uh i think the most i did was about 473 watts or something. Fuck but, off. <laughs> uh, i do it i do it some winters i was doing it once a week and it and it was part of a training effort but uh it was part of a training session, so when I backed off and sort of freshened up, then I'd do it again, and often I'd be 20 watts more. So I'd do it in in the middle of an endurance session, and I don't know, it'd be like 450, and that was also another good way to test because if you were doing like sort of 17 or anything around 17, you were, re- you were I was really good shape. Yeah. Uh, so you, you cultivated that... Uh, kind of idea of being a maverick quite well I'm not sure if it was deliberate or if it was accidental but I'm guessing the stages you won or performed well in did you identify them beforehand or was it how much was advanced planning versus opportunistic um, it's just understanding again going back to what we were saying earlier like I wasn't going to win a sprint or I wasn't going to win an out and out mountain stage so that left those stages in between let's say medium mountains and um yeah, normally in the tour, it's around about five. Um, so they were all had an X in the book, and they were all, um, yeah, definitely targets. So, so when you're why, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, when you're not on a target day, uh, and are you sort of looking at what days you've worked to do on, and the rest of the days you seem to be just chilling down the back of the bunch? Where did that sitting down the back come from? Yeah, it's interesting actually. Um, uh, I don't know. I just found it. I think that's the thing. I think depends what you're in the race to do. You know, if you're in the race for only those stages, 
then it kind of makes sense that all you want to do is get from A to B on the other stages. But I was pretty confident that if I got in a break, I would be quite difficult to beat in those those my best years, you know. Um, and there's not many riders that go to the tour thinking that if they don't make a mistake, they can win a stage, you know. That's that's quite rare, I think. Um, so that's how sort of confident I was. But the confidence comes from like like numbers, confirmation, and, and good preparation. How, but, spe- um, how special was Mandela Day winning the stage in the tour with MTN Quebec and you know their kind of mission? Um, yeah, it's just uh, I don't. Know, I guess it was a dream. It just that, at that point in my career, it made my it made everything worthwhile. And for the team, it was huge. Uh, Wildcard team in the tour, African team on Mandela Day. I think it doesn't get much bigger than that, really, for the team. But there's nearly a confidence or an arrogance about the way you won it. You had, obviously, it was it was you, Pino, and Bardet, was it, if I remember, coming into the finish? Yeah, yeah. Like, you yeah. railed one of the corners, Pino cornering, like, a 50p piece, and you just got that 2-3 bike lens. And yeah. it was just the kind of, you could just see the, you know, I, I think there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance, but you could see it in your in your pedal stroke that, no, I'm, I have two bike lengths here. He's going to pull off and look at Bardet to close this down. Bardet's going to look at him to close it down. I only need two bike lengths. Yeah. No, I was very good at um, being calm. And I don't know, I think I was very, like, I watched a lot of bike racing. um, And I knew every rider and what they were good at and what they were bad at. And I was also very aware of my own strengths and weaknesses. And, uh, yeah, if I, I knew if I had two two meters, it, it couldn't quite catch me. It's just I don't know, it's just like mathematics, really, because I was way more aerodynamic, and I had, you know, like you say, two meters, and that that was enough, really. I, also, I could see under my arm as well, so if they had have come back, I could have sort of sprinted again, but it was okay. <laughs> what what as as a, someone who's never going to win a tour stage. What's it like to win a Tour de France stage? Like I'm assuming when you started out, this wasn't even it's hot. I'll win a Tour de France stage. It was get my first pro contract and you know try and be accepted. Yeah, I think it was always a, it was always a dream, an underlying dream to win it. I always had that dream, but um, yeah, like you say, when when you realise how hard it is when you start, and then I got I was doing the track and stuff like that, and it just seems a million miles away. So it it's, it's, it remains a dream, but I, I, it just it's sort of right, right at the back of your head, and then you're just sort of picking out goals to get towards that dream. And um, I probably was in 2015 when I was probably thinking, well, it might never happen now. There's the times before that where I was close to retiring just because I couldn't get a contract. So um, certainly, yeah, I thought I maybe thought my chance was gone. I was 35, you know, so it's quite late for it to happen. So. Um, but it seems amazing for me watching to think that you were struggling for contracts. Like you'd won the, the Vuelta stage was 2012, 2013 that you won? Yeah, I think it's possibly maybe because of that Maverick style, you know, like the Maverick style is great if you win. If you don't win, you're a bit screwed, you know, because it's like, well, what did you do? And that's, that's a bit short-sighted by team managers and that's that's just the way it is. But you know, I almost wonder were you a generation early that if you were in the generation just starting out your career now, like the Instagram generation that's coming along, like the Maverick style had the potential to build just this huge social media cult following. And do you think that's something that 
going forward, team directors and sponsors are going to increasingly value, like, how many bikes can this guy sell me? How many helmets can this guy sell? Because, you know, the the romance of the domestique, I don't know where that sits with return on investment for a sponsor. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, there's definitely, I've definitely seen riders who have X amount of Instagram followers who are stronger, let's say they're stronger on Instagram than they are on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> get, get bigger but I don't know, I was pretty, um, yeah, I don't know, I, I struggle with that a bit. Um, I always wanted to speak with my legs and not on social media, but I think you're right that definitely it's not really about that, about what what can be sold and how someone can be marketed and, and stuff like that. So companies want to want to sell products. So if if someone's really good on Instagram and not so good on the bike, then um, yeah, it makes sense to me. So, but you know what's even really cool that we didn't see years ago is the little behind the scenes now. Uh, Orica Green Edge done it backstage and then EF Education in the last couple of years, more so with Lachlan Morton and Alex Howes going through the alternative stuff. But you get to see a bit of their personalities. And because I think since helmets came in, like we used to have the pantomime villains, you know, we'd Pantani with the bandana. Like, how fucking easy is it to hate a man with a bandana that looks like a pirate? And it was these characters. Yeah. Then we brought in helmets and glasses, and it's, you know, whatever about the safety end, but everyone just looks emotionless like robots. Yeah, no, yeah, I get you. Yeah, they're all the same. Everyone's the same glasses, the same helmet. Um, yeah, and it, that's nice to see like what Lockie and those people have done, something a bit different. I'm all for that, yeah. Uh, what was the last win you had, Steve? My last win? Uh, I don't remember. Was it Tuscany? I think it was Tour of Tuscany, maybe. I uh, won a stage in Tour of Tuscany, I think. I think I was with Nibali, Banal, and one other, and I won the sprint. Nice. That's a that's a good group to be in and out of. Yeah, the race wasn't the biggest race, but it was in good company. Yeah. And if you if you knew that was your last win at the time, is that you would have done different? Would you have savored it a bit more? Um, not really. I still felt like I, I was. I don't know. The end of the career is a bit of a mess. You know, I broke my back, and I actually when I fell, I was in probably the shape, the best shape I'd been in. I don't know, potentially ever. I was. Super, super good and very motivated. And um, I don't know. I guess that those things uh, you can't control it because crashes happen. But I, I do. You, sometimes you do wonder about what if you know what happens if I hadn't crashed. What would I have done? I do feel like I was in. Sometimes you just get these feelings where it's like well, it's only a matter of time now before I win. And I was in one of those moods right at the end. But is it just real short-sighted from directors of other teams and sponsors? Because you've had an amazing career, you know, Olympic silver medal all the way from Barlow World Discovery to tour stages of Welter Stage. Like, to think that, was it the Tour of Britain you had the bad crash in at the end? Yeah, it's funny, it's what came from home, yeah. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, a good yeah. Tour of Britain and you get a contract, a bad Tour of Britain and you end up retiring. And But you've had a decade-long yeah. career like it's not like you're a 17 year old kid trying to prove yourself like how are they putting so much emphasis on the short term yeah i think there's a few things i think one uh, potentially like an older rider costs more than a younger rider and maybe they looked over at results and i was like i was very much hit or miss so i'd win or i'd be last and um <laughs> 
you know, but that, that that was the name of the game, really, and that with that kind of strategy, or maybe the team just wanted to go down a different a different uh, strategy, and that's just the way it is, isn't it? I guess, I guess as well, when you're 38 and you're going to be 39, people start questioning: Can you do it? Can you do it? But if you looked at the the numbers and all that, then it's like the answer is well, yes, you can still do it, but. Ultimately, it's about it's not about numbers. It was about performing, and I didn't really perform. So I'm not bitter or I'm not sad. It's just that's just the elite sport, you know. It's bloody hard. <laughs> I was just grateful, like I was able to perform when I did. Yeah, isn't it funny that like you're still what are you 39 now? Like you're still a young man, and um, but your career's over. It's chatting to Ian Boswell. He obviously finished at 28, and he's an offer of a world tour contract for the following year, and he walked away because he just he he was just too worried about his health about crashing again but at the, for the two he is like you're restarting like you've missed the bulk of your 20s and 30s you've given it up to cycling you're nearly starting with a you know a 39 year old body but as a 20 year old again trying to figure out what to do next in life yeah no it's uh sorry my daughter's here homeschooling she's taking photos of me um <laughs> yeah I, I don't know um yeah, it's really hard to, to be honest. I don't know. I'm pretty in a good place. I'm, I'm happy and enjoy like new challenges. But I, I'm not. I'm not really sure like what I want to do. I, I know I like. I like. Be helping younger riders. I, I really enjoy that. And um, so if I can do something around that, that'd be really good. And I still like riding my bike. Um, Working quite hard to try and find out, find what it is I want to do. You know, <laughs> it's not easy. What do you study in university at the moment? Um, business and sport management. How are you finding that? <laughs> yeah, it's quite good. I've done. Uh, I did a module on like race intelligence, which was really good. I did a module team culture. Um, it's all kind of linked to cycling. I did something on um, broadcast journalism, so commentary and stuff like that. Um, so it's all like useful stuff and just being open and just uh, trying to learn, you know. Um, I left school when I was 17, so um, it was quite hard going back when I was 37. <laughs> but, but you know, you know, I love like all the high performers that I've got to chat to and one of the common traits you see across a lot of them, it's almost this, I call it a white belt mentality, that they're willing to go back and go from being world class in one thing to being an absolute beginner in something else and just not caring about, you know, public perception, peer perception. It's just like, yeah, I'm a beginner again and I'm owning it. And it's the only way to grow. I think so many people are just afraid to take that leap and look foolish. Yeah, no, I, that, I think that's what I really enjoy. Um, I, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this study, and I, at times it's really probably kept me sane a bit. Um, yeah, I, re- I really enjoy it, um, and I want to do like martial arts and stuff like that. But um, it's just not the moment at the moment, so I have to wait wait a little bit. But yeah, I like being learning new stuff, and yeah, eventually like. I've, that's why I enjoyed running at first because it's just you go out and you've got like a blank sheet of paper and you've got no preconceptions of how fast you need to run or anything like that. You just go out and go for a run and it's a bit the same with university. I just try try my best and go through, follow a good uh, system and and 
doing my best and the mark is the mark you know <laughs> i have a question i like what to ask is. people come on uh do you have a, a morning routine um yeah i guess i do uh, i just have coffee <laughs> I get up, I have coffee, and my daughter, at the moment, my daughter wakes me up, she pulls my arm and she says, come on, you're wasting time. We <laughs> so came downstairs, and then, yeah, I sort her out for breakfast, put the TV on for her, she watches some TV, and then, um, at the moment, I've been reading, so I read, like, half an hour while she's having a breakfast, um, and then I have another coffee, I have my own breakfast, whatever that is. And then I, I've been doing DIY, and that's, that's about it, about it, nothing crazy. Uh, if we were to have a coffee now, or do another podcast interview 12 months from now, and you're, I say interview you, and you say to me, you know what, it's been a fucking cracking year, unbelievable year, what has to happen in that 12 months? Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know, um, <laughs> Uh, like, she's, not, she's not happier on the podcast. <laughs> oh, she's running around to homeschooling for you. The joys, oh, of, the joys of homeschooling. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I guess just to be happy, you know, just for me and my family to be happy. Um, and to do that, I guess I need to find what it is I want to do. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, just carry on the way I am, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I think we're doing all right, everyone's happy, we're all healthy, that'd be a good year if we can carry on like that, I think. Uh, Steve, if anyone wants to catch up with you, or where's the best place to follow you, you're, you said you're not a massive social media man, but if anyone wants to follow the journey and see what you're up to next? Um, yeah, I don't know, I, I do go on Instagram, that's about it, but I'm not on there a lot, so um, I don't know, maybe I'll get into it a bit more, but I'm just quite low-key i guess <laughs> sorry <laughs> i'll link up uh, i'll link up your instagram in the description for the podcast and give them a follow ladies and gentlemen steve Cummings, Anthony, it's been you. a pleasure yeah thanks you know thank you mate thanks for you. thanks for talking to you <laughs> and the little one yeah yeah she's, she's all right she's she's, she's on the limit now that's a wrap that's a wrap on Steve Cummins podcast uh, I hope you're enjoying listening to these podcasts as much as I'm enjoying bringing you these podcasts they're literally like their childhood dreams of mine to chat to some of these guys and I'm learning so much every week about what makes elite athletes think and the lessons that we're learning here they're applicable to sport but they're definitely applicable to wider life as well there's a mentality that there's a mentality that you need to get to the very top of anything and we're lucky that we're getting a little glimpse into the world of some of the very 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 elite performers on this planet so i'm absolutely loving that and i hope you guys are too like i said at our brief little ocarina pause in the middle our brief little interlude the way to help me keep these podcasts coming it's patreon it's patreon dot com forward slash anthony underscore walsh and if you really wanted to do me a favor get onto instagram and screen capture the podcast as you're listening to it share it onto your instagram stories tag us at a1 coaching and that really helps us to spread awareness of the podcast look we're in this together guys this is a community that i really want to build a community of you road men 
and I'm gonna keep working my little socks off. I'm gonna keep working my little cotton socks off to bring you this quality content. I'm gonna bring you another one next week and it's epic again. Stay tuned and I'm gonna see you during the week. Thanks for listening, Rob, man.